And welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, our Bible readings in the Robert Murray McShane plan are Genesis 5, Ezra 5, Matthew 5, and Acts 5. And our big question of the day is, what exactly does it mean to be meek and why are the meek blessed? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bible Reading Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Chase Thompson. I'm a pastor in the Salinas, Monterey area of California. If you live around here, if you live in Salinas or Monterey, I'd love to invite you to join us at Valley Baptist Church. We are at 320 Church Street, and we have gathering Sunday morning at 1030 a.m., Our focus passage today is Matthew 5, and how in the world could it not be? In this passage, we see the beginning of the most famous and most well-known sermon ever taught by anybody, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here lays down his ethics, his command, his way of life, his motivations, all of those things. When we think about the great commission that Jesus gave us um, to take the gospel to the world, we really need to remember that a large part of it, almost half of the great commission, at least in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is that we teach the world to observe and obey the teachings of Jesus. And of course, a good place to start with that commission is here in Matthew 5. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21. 
You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same thing? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a... Well, I was going to say that's a challenging passage, but honestly, that is a lot of challenges in one passage, dozens and dozens. And as I was reading them, every, almost every one of them, I, I'm, I'm really almost being slapped in the face, cold water dumped on my head thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I'm so far away from, from walking consistently in the ethic of Jesus. And the solution to that is not to uh, just shut the Bible to have uh, open hearts, open mind, open hands, and closed Bible. No, we gotta, we've got to open the Bible. We've got to walk in it. We've got to walk in the ways of Jesus. And thanks be to God, we don't have to do that in our own power. 
He empowers us to do it. So our question of the day concerns what might be the most famous verse from the most famous sermon ever, verse 5. Even those who haven't been to church in years are familiar with this verse, where we are told that the meek or the gentle, in our uh, Christian Standard Bible translation today, the meek or the gentle are blessed. That's an interesting, it's really a counterintuitive message. It raises a couple of really compelling questions. What does it mean to be meek for one? And the second question is, how exactly are the meek blessed? Because it doesn't seem like meek people are really going to be all that blessed, or at least it doesn't seem like they are now. So in answering that question, let's, uh, let's put on our scholar hat and take a look at the word meek. The Greek word there is the word praotis, and the good news for us is that word is used so frequently in the Bible, I think we can look at a few other passages and get a really good idea of what it means. Let's start with Jesus himself. Matthew 21, 5, a great passage that talks about the, uh, the, the entrance of Jesus into the city before his crucifixion. The Old Testament has prophesied for us in Zechariah that God is going to send a king. That king is going to ride a donkey, which is just incredibly weird. Kings don't ride donkeys. They they ride much more royal creatures, and they get around in better ways. But Matthew 25, look, your king is coming to you gentle. That's the word, meek, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. So meekness here. The word we're talking about, meekness, gentleness, refers to the kind of king who would ride on a donkey. It has that element of humility to it. Colossians 3.12, Paul says this, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, here it is, gentleness and patience. So we see that meekness slash gentleness has an element of that kind of softness or gentleness, gentleness to it. The kind of gentleness that fits in perfectly with compassion, kindness, humility, and patience. And then we get to Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them, says Paul, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing meekness, gentleness to all people. So we see here, meekness is represented by a person who avoids arguments, who avoids quarrels, and doesn't talk bad about other people. I mean, it sounds like a lovely little thing, doesn't it? If you go to the website Got Questions, which is a really good website to research things like this, it'll help us out here too. Uh, the writer says, meekness models the humility of Jesus Christ. As Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Jesus, as being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Being in the very nature God, Jesus had the right to do whatever he wanted to do, but for our sake and for the sake of his Father, he submitted to death on a cross. That is the ultimate in meekness. Now, let me close out this section before we get to the rest of the scripture with some words from uh, our old friend John Piper on meekness. John Piper is a uh, writer and pastor from Minnesota, and John says this, Let's stand back and see if we can see the 
portrait, the whole portrait of meekness. Meekness begins when we put our trust in God. Then because we trust him, we commit our way to him. We roll onto him our anxieties or frustrations, plans, relationships, our jobs, our health. And then we wait patiently for the Lord. We trust his timing and his power and his grace to work things out in the best way for his glory and for our good. The result of trusting God and the rolling of our anxieties onto God and waiting patiently for God is that we don't have to give way to quick and fretful anger, but instead, like Moses, we give place to wrath and hand our cause over to God and let him vindicate us if he so chooses. And then, as James says, in this quiet confidence, we are slow to speak and quick to listen. We become reasonable and open to correction. Meekness loves to learn. And it counts the blows or the scoldings or the rebukes of a friend as precious. And when it must say a critical word to a person caught in sin or error, it speaks from the deep conviction of its own fallibility and its own susceptibility to sin and its utter dependence on the glory of God. What effect does Jesus want this promise to have on the disciples? I think the answer is that he wants to promise that he wa- he wants the promise to give them strength to continue in their meekness. This is the way he the promise works in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, the promise of great reward gives his disciples and us strength to endure persecution with joy. So I think the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth is intended by the Lord to give us the strength to endure in meekness when our natural inclination would be to defend ourselves or retaliate or I'll add this, post something mean and scathing on Facebook or whatever. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ sitting at his feet on the mount this morning, that is to say, if you trust him and commit your way to him and wait patiently for him, God has already begun to help you and will help you more. And the primary way that he will help you is to assure your heart that you are a fellow heir of Jesus Christ, and that the world and everything in it is yours and will be yours. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not freely give us all things with him? All things. No good thing will be withheld from those who walk uprightly. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that was from a John Piper sermon that he preached all the way back in the 1980s. I hope that was a big encouragement to you. And now, if that's uh, all that you're going to stick around for, I'll just say God bless you. We'll be back here tomorrow. We'll be in Genesis 6, Ezra 6, Matthew 6, and Acts chapter 6. And man, I do want to encourage you to come back tomorrow for the podcast because we're going to be talking about Genesis 6. And you say, well, what's the big deal with that? Oh my gosh, Genesis 6 is the Nephilim passage. There were giants on the earth in those days. What what does that mean? What does it mean that the sons of God went into the daughters of men? Well, I'm, we're not going to talk about it now, but that's coming tomorrow. So if you're, if you're leaving us now, I'll just say goodbye and stay tuned for tomorrow when that will be our big question. But for the rest of us, we're going to read the other passages in our reading. That's Ezra and Matthew and Acts. Genesis 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. 
On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years, then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years, then he died. Mahalalel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Mahalalel's life lasted 895 years, then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years. Then he died. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old. And he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ezra chapter 5 verse 1, Holman, Christian Standard Bible. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Jeshua son of Josadak began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatnai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar, Bosnai, and their colleagues came to the Jews and asked, Who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? They also asked them, What are the names of the workers who are constructing this building? But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop them until a report was sent to Darius so they could receive written instructions about this matter. 
This is the text of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Batsanai, and their colleagues, the officials in the region, sent to King Darius. They sent him a report written as follows. To King Darius, all greetings. Let it be known to the king that we went to the house of the great god in the province of Judah. It is being built with cut stones, and its beams are being set in the walls. This work is being done diligently and succeeding through the people's efforts. So we questioned the elders and asked, Who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? We also asked them for their names so that we could write down their names of the leaders for your information. This is the reply they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But since our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, he issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He also took from the temple in Babylon the gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to the temple in Babylon. He released them from the temple in Babylon to a man named Sheshbazar, the governor by the appointment of King Cyrus. Cyrus told them, Take these articles, put them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. Then this same Sheshbazar came and said, laid the foundation of God's house in Jerusalem. It has been under construction from that time until now, yet it has not been completed. So, if it pleases the king, let a search of the royal archives in Babylon be conducted to see if it is true that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. Acts chapter 5 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, 
A multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them into the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked with a guard standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For this plan, or this work, is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flocked, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And my friends, that is some fantastic news. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. Praise be his name. Thank you for listening today. We will be back tomorrow 
with chapter 6 in Genesis, chapter 6 in Ezra, chapter 6 in Matthew, and chapter 6 in Acts. I do want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. You can find show notes there and some helps on your Bible reading plan and all kind of things like that. That will do it for me. We will see you tomorrow. Good night, good day, good afternoon, and God bless.